Well, the fretless bass. Ever heard of that? The fretless bass? I'm pretty sure Neil Arocco has, so I won't be asking him. But uh, the origins are uncertain. But uh, let me share some things that I found out about the fretless bass. Jaco Pastorius is a bass pioneer, and he allegedly was the first to create and use the fretless bass. In 1969 or 1970, he removed frets from his 1962 Fender Jazz and produced his trademark singing fretless sound. Now, uh, also we have Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones, who played a homemade fretless bass in 1961 and has played it in many of the band's songs. So, there, like I said, uh, uncertain origins of this fretless bass. And then some of you may know Gordon Sumner by the name Sting, who uh, was with the police. He perfected the fretless bass in the songs like Message in a Bottle, Walking on the Moon, and Spirits in the Material World. Uh, so there is your fretless bass history lesson for today. Very brief. How'd I do, Neil? Pretty good? Anyway, I guess you could say that a fretless bass is a bass that is unencumbered by frets. Have you ever heard of the fretless song? And no, it's not a song played by a fretless bass, although that could happen. But this fretless song reveals a way to be unencumbered by the frets or worries and concerns of this world. It's a song about how to experience a fretless life. And today we continue our summer of songs by looking at the fretless song found in Psalm 37. Now let me share with you the main idea of today's message, uh, just in case you have somewhere to go, or you anticipate being distracted by something or someone, or maybe uh, even lulled to sleep by my dreamy voice. Um, here's the main point. Trust more, fret less. Trust more, fret less. When we trust God more, we will fret less in this world. Super shocking revelation, right? Uh, well, get ready for the, this next one. It's, it's, it, it's related to the first phrase and just as shocking, but maybe even more sobering to us. If we fret more in this world, it's because we trust God less. If we, tr if we fret more in this world, it's because we trust God less. What do you worry about? What do you, what do you fret about? And I'll just let you kind of think about that, because I'm sure there's some things coming in your mind right now, about some things that you are concerned of, or that come to you and you start to worry about. What do you trust God less about? I hope we can address the fretfulness in your life today and realize that if we fret more in this world, it's because we trust God less. But when we trust God more, we will fret less in this world. Trust more, fret less. Turn with me uh, to Psalm 37, and we will read through this psalm, um, and then we'll look at its background, and then we'll discover David's simple but effective advice to us in Psalm 37. Follow along with me as I read uh, the verses of this psalm. Psalm 37 of David. Do not fret 
because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The days of the blameless are known to the Lord, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster they will not wither, in days of famine they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies will be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those he curses will be cut off. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of his God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, seeking their very lives. But the Lord will not leave them in their power, or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless. Observe, observe the, the upright. There is a future for the man of peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. 
Psalm 37. You know, this, uh, some background to this psalm, it is also known as an acrostic psalm. Uh, the odd number verses fulfill this acrostic pattern, beginning a, a line with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in consecutive order. Uh, it, if I read Hebrew, which I can't and did not, we would notice that with each uh, odd verse would begin with the alphabet in, in the Hebrew alphabet. A letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, if you read uh, Psalm 119, it follows that kind of pattern too, but it takes sections of it and uh, starts each line in that section with the Hebrew letter of the alphabet. But this psalm basically resembles a collection of proverbs with alphabetical arrangement going on. And this brings me to the other character characteristic of this psalm. Because of its similarity to wisdom literature found in Proverbs, it's also known as a wisdom psalm. It almost sounded like a portion of Proverbs as I was reading through Psalm 37. And there are some recurring themes in this psalm as well. Four recurring themes that go on throughout this psalm, these 40 verses of this psalm. Uh, there's dwelling, dwelling in the promised land. There's a theme of the unjust uh, prosperity of the uh, uh, the unjust prosperity of the wicked is found in this uh, in this whole psalm. There's also the theme of the ultimate destruction of the wicked, and there's also to God's protection of the righteous. Those four themes are throughout this whole psalm. And David, who is the author of this psalm, was an old man when he wrote this psalm. It deals with a question that has puzzled people through all the ages. A question that is still being asked today. How can we account for the fact that the wicked or the lawless are often prosperous and the godly or the believers often face hardships and dis disappointments and even per uh, uh, persecution? Great question that continues to be asked throughout the ages and difficult to answer. There's a theological foundation for this psalm as well too. And it's the covenant God made with Israel. It's recorded in Leviticus chapter 26 as well as Deuteronomy uh, chapters 27 through 30. But God owned the land. And if the nation obeyed him, they could live in the land and enjoy its blessings. But if Israel disobeyed the Lord, he would first humble them in the land through invasion and drought and famine. But if they continued to rebel, he would then take them out of the land and into captivity. Now you can check that all out in Deuteronomy chapter 11 as well as Leviticus chapter 26, which I won't read to you right now, but you can read on your own time when you uh, might need some sleep. But the righteous could fret over the problem, or they could leave the land, or go on being faithful, trusting the Lord to keep his word. Those are the three things they could have done. And David encouraged Solomon and the people to believe God's promises and to wait on him. David could have had the book of Job possibly in mind as he thought about the problem and wrote the psalm. Job shows that there are factors at work in God's leadership which men can't really see and, and that in the end things turn out right and good according to God's will. But the end is sometimes a way off, far off, and long in coming. Sometimes it doesn't seem to come at all in this life. The problem hardly ever goes away easily. 
no waving of a magic wand or the snapping of the fingers is going uh, to solve the problem, the problem that might be going on in our life. Why does wickedness seem to triumph and goodness so often seems to go unrewarded? Great questions, great issues to grapple with. But the question we have before us today is, will we fret about all of this? <laughs> or will we place our trust in God, who can deal with it all? Will we trust more and fret less? David gives us uh, some repeated advice here in this psalm. And, and uh, the first repeated advice that he gives us is to fret not. Fret not. In verse 1, fret not about those who are evil. It says, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. The prosperity of those who were evil troubled David tremendously. It's a subject that's dealt with in Psalm 73 as well as some other Psalms too, but also in other places in the Old Testament. Why do the godless people seem to prosper? In the Old Testament, God promised people earthly and material prosperity. He hasn't promised that to believers to today, and our, our hope is in heaven. It's not on earth. It's in heaven. But the hope of Israel was on the earth, and, and the man of that day looked, looked around and saw the ungodly prosper. He could see the fields of the ungodly being watered by the rain and flourishing, while down the road... A poor righteous man was having a hard time. It was difficult to understand the reason for this. And when we see evil in the world, we ought to feel a holy anger at sin, as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 talks about. But to envy the wicked only leads to fretting. And fretting leads to anger as verse 8 tells us here in Psalm 37. Fret not might be translated more so as don't worry. And that's what I hope we get to here today, that we should not be worrying about all those things around us. In the end, the evil man's prosperity is not something to be envied. <laughs> he is to be pitied because his little day doesn't last long, as verse 2 indicates. This earth is the only heaven they are ever going to have. And their spectacular careers will fade and wither as God brings punishment for their evil deeds. And this, this very, very thing should bring us to our knees on behalf of those people. We should be praying that they realize their wrongdoing and see their need for a Savior. There's no need to envy them. But we should pray for them. Fret not about those who are evil. And David also tells us in verse 7, the second part of verse 7, fret not when the wicked succeed in their ways. Verse 7 says, do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Fret not. The word fret again could also mean uh, to blaze or to get hot. We could easily get into a, a, a feverish rage against those who are carrying out their wicked schemes. And you think about it. Those who are building pornography into a billion-dollar business. Why? Why that influence in the world today? 
we could we could get uh, into a feverish rage about those who are destroying our young people with alcohol and drugs and influencing them influencing their lives in that way. We could get in a feverish rage against those in our colleges who are systematically stripping young people of any faith they might have in God. But instead of fretting, our best resource is in God. Because the weapons of our of our warfare aren't aren't, aren't carnal. They're spiritual. And they are mighty through God to bring down those schemes. Sometimes it takes greater discipline to wait than it does to go to war. And here we need to wait upon God. But fret not when the wicked succeed in their ways. And then David tells us in verse 8, Fret not, it only leads to evil. Fret not, it only leads to evil. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Verse 8. Refrain from anger. Don't lose your temper, either against uh, the wicked for, for, for their success, or against God for bringing it about, <laughs> which is kind of what Jonah did. He got angry. Chapter 4 of Jonah, the first verse there says there, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He wanted God to help those people, just punish them with his, with his wrath. But God relented. God had mercy. Jonah was angry. He was upset. If you do evil, don't think you can get away with it. If you are God's child, you will find yourself in deep trouble if you try to get away with evil. <laughs> but David once again says, do not fret. And why the repetition here? Because for needed emphasis in this whole thing, of course, we need to hear it over and over again. Even after determining not to get upset over the way we are treated, we often go back and stir up the mud all over again in our minds, don't we? We, we think about it a lot. We think about what that person did to us. Or we think about what they are doing and how evil it is and why are they prospering. And then it rolls around in our minds. We rehash the details of our situation. But this is both self-defeating and hazardous. Mere fretting, even against undeserved prosperity, accomplishes nothing. It only builds resentment without creating a solution. We get just all we get all steamed up and no place to go. <laughs> Fret not, because it only leads to evil. So thank you, David, for telling us what not to do. But then he also gives us some good advice on what to do. And so what should we do? As we look at this Psalm 37, four simple words: trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. David gives us this advice in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. David knew what he was talking about. For years he had lived as a hunted fugitive, but he didn't miss a meal. And now Saul, his enemy, was dead and he now sat upon his enemy's throne. He truly had his dwelling in the land. So David was very aware of, of all this type of thing going on. A fretful heart is not a trusting heart because it lacks joy and peace. Romans 15 verse 13 tells us about that. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also faith and hope, or faith and works, faith and works go together. So we should also do good as we, by faith, wait on the Lord. And Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus tells us uh, that we should love uh, our enemies, do good to them. He says, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So love your enemies, do good to them. And also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul's writing to the uh, church there in Galatia, and he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So, while we are dwelling in the land and enjoying safe pasture, we are trusting in the Lord and doing good. So, faith and works coming together. In Ruth chapter 1 and also in 1 Samuel chapter 26, some of God's people were tempted to leave the land. And in the land refers to Canaan there, which was very equivalent to saying that God wasn't faithful and couldn't be trusted. Let's get out of here. God doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's thinking. He's off his rocker. We're moving on. We're getting out of here. We're leaving the land. But David encouraged them to stay in the land and trust God for what they needed. Each tribe, clan, and family in Israel had its assigned inheritance, which wasn't to pass into other hands. And the Lord promised to care for the land of the faithful. You know, if, if we are faithful to God, He will be faithful to us. Trusting the Lord is a key theme in this psalm, and it should be a key theme in our lives as well. Despite the fiercest attacks of, of demons or men, no sheep of Christ will ever perish, as Jesus states in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who, was, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And as Jesus mentioned in John chapter 4, a dwelling place in the Father's house is guaranteed to all who trust in Christ. The command to do good means to continue in the, in the practice of that which is good and well-pleasing to God. We should continue in that, doing good. Trust in the Lord and do good. So then David gives us an idea of what trusting the Lord looks like. As we read through Psalm 37. So what is it that we should trust him with? Well, for instance, in verse 4, trust him with your desires. Trust him with your desires. It says in verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This was a promise for Israel, but it also applies to us today. I can't guarantee that God's going to bless your business or give you good grades in school. But... He has already blessed you with spiritual blessings. And he will shower on you all the spiritual blessings you can, can contain. This is, good, this is good to remember. Because when things go wrong, we tend to get focused on the problems, don't we? 
Maybe things have gone wrong at work, or maybe at school, or at home, or with some friends. Things have just kind of gone sour. Maybe relationships in your life are a bit strained, to say the least. Well, we must get our eyes back on the Lord. As long as we look at the problem, we can become increasingly depressed. But if we look at the Lord, we can rise above our circumstances. After all, God hasn't failed, and He cannot fail. Our happiness must not rest upon what happens. It must be drawn out of the, the salvation relationship we have with God, and from our experiencing the goodness and the grace and the greatness of our God as well. Now the word translated delight in that verse comes from a root word that means to be brought up in luxury and to be pampered. <laughs> it speaks of the abundance we have in the Lord himself, totally apart from what he gives us. Delight yourself in the Lord. That is, delight yourself in his favor and his service and in the study of his word and his promises. To enjoy the blessings and to ignore the blesser is to practice idolatry. In Jesus Christ, we have all God's treasures. We don't need anything else. If we truly delight in the Lord, then the secret desire of our heart will be to know him better so that we can delight in him even more and the Lord will, will satisfy that desire. This isn't a promise this isn't a promise for people who want things, but for those who want more of God in their lives. And the phrase, the desires of your heart, suggests somewhat of a self-examination. What are, what are really our desires? What do we think about when we are alone? Now, what is the desire of the heart of a good man? It is to know and love and serve God. We have to train our desires. If they are properly trained so that we can invite the Lord to inspect them, He will certainly increase them. He will give you the desires of your heart, that which is truly desirable and good for you. Suppose you, you, you have, a, have, have had great desires to carry on a certain ministry for the Lord. God has placed it on your heart, and, and you're looking to do this. You feel confident that he, he has been leading you, and your only desire is to glorify him. But you have been opposed, and you have been blocked, and you've been hindered at every turn of your, your journey by a powerful enemy. What do you do in this situation? You stomp your, your feet on the ground, and you get all upset, and you start fretting? No, no. You delight yourself in the Lord knowing that in his own time, he shall give you the desires of your heart. You don't need to fight back. As, as 2 Chronicles tells us, chapter 20, verse 15, the battle is not yours, but God's. And as God told the Israelites, as the Egyptians were closing in on them at the Red Sea, he also tells you, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Trust him. Trust him with your desires. And then David also tells us in verse 5, Trust him with your ways. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. 
Trust in him and he will do this. Trust in him. Literally, trust on him. And remember, God has the big picture in mind and isn't going to be shoved or pushed or, or hurried by our worrying. Give God time. Give him time. He will work things out in your life. God is good. We need to remember it. God is good. But many Christians don't view God that way. They think, they think he is a type of villain, a villain who will turn on, on you at any moment. He never will. God is your friend. He loves you and he wants to save you, but you have to commit your way to him. And the word commit, it's an inter interesting one. It literally means to roll over. So we need to take our burdens and roll them over on him. And the word way not only means your journey through life, but it also can mean the kind of life we choose and develop. So our way of life has to be the kind that we can commit to God in prayer. If we can, as far as our personal life is concerned, he will take care of it. A way leads somewhere. If you're on your way, it's leading you somewhere. God will make sure that a committed life leads to himself. True religion is basically summed up in two words, submit and commit. As we submit ourselves to God and commit to his ways. And one of the things he will do is vindicate his own who have been slandered by God's enemies. He will do those things. He will do that. He will, he will vindicate us. Now imagine, imagine that you've been misquoted or maybe falsely accused or maybe even slandered. If there were some shred of truth to, to the charges, they wouldn't be so hard to take. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You'd admit it. Yeah, you're right. I, 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 uh, I did these things. But in this case, but in this case, they are absolutely untrue and malicious. What should you do? You're being accused. You're being falsely accused of some things, misquoted, slandered, and it's, it's wrong. You did not do these things. What should you do? You commit the matter to the Lord. You roll the whole weight of it onto the Lord. Let him act on your behalf, and then you'll be completely vindicated. It will become clear for all to see that you were innocent after all. So trust him with your ways. And then, verse 7, David tells us, trust him with your anxiousness. Trust him with your anxiousness. In verse 7, the first part of it says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord. Uh, be still, the, that phrase there, the, those two words, means basically can be mean, also mean to be silent or to rest. It describes a calm surrender to the Lord. Silence, you know, it's a rare thing these days. Even in church worship services, you know, people can't tolerate silence. It invites kind of an awkwardness into the situation. We usually want to fill that dead air with some kind of noise to break that awkwardness. It also causes us to impatiently move on to something else. Have you ever ever been on a radio station and all of a sudden it just kind of goes silent? <laughs> I've, I've been there. 
listening to a radio station, all of a sudden there's just nothing. I'm thinking, did something happen? <laughs> and not wanting to listen to the dead air, I go to another channel. Switch to something else. I want to hear something. Unless we learn to wait silently before God, we will never experience His peace. We need to learn. Learn to wait silently before God. As the rest of uh, verse 7 indicates, to get upset at the evil schemes of the ungodly is to doubt the goodness and justice of God. So let's be satisfied that God will make everything work out for our good. Let's not burden ourselves with what we see in the world. Since God is carrying your burden, it's not necessary for you to bear it as well. Give it all over to Him. Too often, what, it, what, exa what we exactly do is we, we cast our care hesitantly on Him. <laughs> then we quickly take it back on ourselves. We don't even trust Him for what's care what, what we care for and what, what is burdening us. If it's a burden on us and we give it to God, let Him have it. Don't take it back. Rest in the Lord and wait. Be submissive. Avoid being irritable and complaining and acting harshly. The Christian should not become emotionally disturbed or build up anger, resentment, or malice and hatred. If we allow ourselves to engage in, in these kinds of attitudes, they can eventually lead to words and actions that will be regrettable. Who would ever want to hear the peace God offers by some hot-headed, angry Christian anyway? Trust Him. Trust Him with your anxiousness. And then finally, David uh, talks about in verse 34, to trust Him with your security. Trust Him with your security. Verse 34, Hope in the Lord and keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. There is a promise here for the godly person that God will exalt him. But there are two conditions, two conditions that must be met. First, one of them, we are to hope in or wait on the Lord. And then the second one is that we are to keep his way. The first condition requires patience and trusting God to do what he said he would do. And the second requires us to put our confidence on the Lord. Our best policy, our best policy is to trust or wait on the Lord and to obey, to keep his way. Just like the hymn tell, that, that tells us there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The one who waits on the Lord will enjoy security and will have a future while the wicked who seem to flourish will be destroyed. His schemes and deception will be rewarded by death. When God settles the score, the righteous man will see how just God is. In the meantime, it will look as though the wicked are prospering, but there's a day coming when the truth will be on the side of the godly, and all accounts will be settled according to God's will. And, as it says in Scripture, you will see it. You won't, you won't only escape the destruction they had planned for you, but you will live to see their destruction. 
It's like driving on 205 and you see a, a, a car just zipping on down the freeway in the fast lane. You're already traveling about 60 and they're leaving you in the dust like you're only going 35. Then up ahead you see the blue and red lights come on <laughs> and they go after that guy. And later on about a mile down the road you pass the both the, the policeman and that speed speeder on the on the road and you are able to see uh, what goes on. This is kind of what God is saying here that we will see it. You will see it the the destruction of of the of the wicked. They will be destroyed. And I also want to I also want to say is that as we see it, we should not revel in it. We should not go, yes, that is what needs to happen. We should be down on our knees for the wicked. We should be down on our knees knowing that they will be destroyed. We should realize that but before uh, grace of God go I. We know that we are in the hands of God and, and his grace and realize that uh, the wicked, as they are destroyed, we need to be praying for them praying for them. But trust God. Trust Him with your security. So the bottom line then is trust more and fret less. When we trust God more, we will fret less in this world. And Jesus spoke about this very subject during His Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, Jesus speaks to the crowd about worrying. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And using the example of a bird, Jesus emphasizes the need to trust God in all things because we are valuable in his sight. Trust more, fret less. I'd like to close this message with another fretless song. It uses the illustration Jesus used, but first let me share a little background to the song. Sevilla Martin was born in Nova Scotia in 1866, and her husband was an evangelist who traveled all over the United States. She accompanied him, and they worked together on most of the musical arrangements that were sung. And in 1904, Sevilla was visiting an ill, bed bedridden friend. Although discouraged and sick, her friend remembered that God, her Heavenly Father, was watching over each little sparrow and would certainly watch after her. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And then Mrs. Martin, was a, she was a poet and thought this would be a perfect idea for a poem. So she jotted down the idea by the end of the day. And then she had completed the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. The entire poem was sent to a well-known composer that day by the name of Charles Gabriel, and his music has carried this song 
all around the world in small churches to great crusades. And I've asked Don, Don Haas to play this song at the piano. And, and so I trust that you can enjoy this fretless song as a reminder to trust God more. Enjoy. for playing that song so beautifully. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Trust more and fret less. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your message today to us. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here listening today, watching today, that seems to just have worry upon worry, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them that you are a God that can be trusted. I pray, Lord, that, that we would bring those concerns to you, lay them at your feet, and trust that you will deal with them 
in your timing and in your way. Not in our timing, not in our way. We want your will to be done. And Lord, help us not to pick those, those worries back up again. Help us, Lord, to fret less and to trust you more. Thank you, Lord, for, for your message. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And I pray, Lord, that today we would leave uh, our time here together ready to trust you more. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you have for us this week. And thank you, Jesus, for being with us and preparing the way this week. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.